You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Sushma, and she's going to start us off with a shloka from the Gita. Oh, hi. Good morning. Yada yada hi dharmascha, glanir bhavati bharata, abhyutthanama dharmascha, tadatmanam srijamyaham. Thank you, Kino. Thank you. That was beautiful. Would you share with everyone which, uh, which loka that was and why you decided to start this session off with it? Uh, sure. So uh, basically, we see a lot of things going on in the world, uh, a lot of things that are negatively being impacted, right? So whenever there is a dharma or things that are not, uh, uh, that doesn't look right, there's always God who comes and makes things right. So no matter what the world looks like, how bad it is, whenever there is an increase in adharma, there is always dharma uh, holding us, like uh, trying to bring us all together back. So that, that's the reason uh, I, I decided to go with this shloka. What a beautiful shloka for these, these difficult and challenging times. You know, it seems like these days, everywhere we look, there's something that's going wrong, whether it's in the world or whether it's in our, our you know, our, our, our smaller communities. So um, I would love for everyone who's tuning in to just know a little bit about, about you, where you're coming from and your background. So would you share with everyone how, um, how you got to where you are now? Sure, sure. Uh, so I would like, uh, I, I mean, just to define myself, I would say I'm someone who practices and believes in Sri Aurobindo's philosophy, all life is yoga. Uh, and I am born into a traditional Hindu dharmic household, like an average Hindu household. And uh, I've come uh, at the age of 21 to U United States to do my master's. And I started uh, working here. Uh, married and like I have a baby right now who is five months old um, and I have been a student of Ashtanga Yoga uh, for the past uh, few years although since last one year because of pregnancy and childbirth it's been a little slow so uh, that is a little bit of, about my background um, uh, to get uh, so so coming to the topic uh, like uh, that I want to speak about. I would also say I'm like when I, during my teenage years, I was someone who called myself uh, spiritual, but not religious. Uh, but the way this term has been uh, used, you know, to spread Hindu phobia, speci specifically towards Hindus. I, and especially since Hinduism is not a set of dogmas, I stopped using this term and I embraced my roots again. I, I am spiritual, but like spirituality and religiousness, it doesn't really have a lot of uh, collision in Hinduism. So that that is that is someone whom like I don't call myself anymore. Uh, yeah, that that's that's something about me. 
Where in India were you born and raised? Uh, I'm born and raised in southern part of India. It's a city called Hyderabad. Hmm. Uh, that's where I spent my entire life uh, before hmm. coming to the United States. Hmm. And you've been in the U.S. You said for almost ten years now. Yes, yes. What a unique place to have been born and raised in this traditional Hindu family, and then also now to have spent the last ten years in the U.S. and to be a practitioner of yoga. This yeah. is a very unique intersection that that you sit at. Right. Um, I, I'm so excited to hear your unique perspective and the first person knowledge and intelligence that you can bring to uh, the the dialogue that's happening in the you know the yoga community and all over the world and very much in the Western world. So the first kind of big big picture question uh, is that there are some people who even to this day don't understand that yoga comes from the Hindu culture. And what would you say about that? You know, for people who who come to yoga in a in a gym and then they don't even think that the yoga comes from India and they don't even associate it with the Hindu faith. Right. I think it has a lot to do with the way it has been marketed. Uh, there has been Hindu phobia for decades right now, like uh, in 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 the US, even when. Uh, Swami Vivekananda, he when he came uh, several decades ago, there was a lot of Hindu phobia since then. He was the one who kind of uh, introduced like Hinduism to the US or even brought in yoga. So uh, it, there has been a lot of Hindu phobia. So it almost feels like the reason there is a separation from yoga and Hinduism is b- so that that having that separation caters to the audience here if if you are strongly linking hinduism and yoga people are not going to get attracted so having that de- uh, like having that separation is it, it's going to make people feel more comfortable to come in instead of feeling like oh something is happening my faith is going to get affected or like someone would say oh they're going to convert me if, if we walk into yoga studio and you know that's not a thing in hinduism so i think in order to address all these fears there has been a lot of delinking of hinduism and yoga and how do you feel about that on a, on a personal level uh definitely not good <laughs> it's like you're taking the knowledge but you don't want uh where the knowledge is coming from like yoga is one of the darshanas of hinduism so you can't just uh delink hinduism and yoga uh i don't know if you've uh, seen like even in the uh latest uh, international yoga day celebrations there was a huge campaign to disassociate hinduism and yoga there have been people all over trying to say that hinduism is nowhere associated to yoga so definitely as a practicing hindu it it, it is something uh, i i would uh, feel very bad about yeah so i re- i feel you on that and for me it's something completely bizarre as well and and i don't have the 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 sort of personal hurt and and wound around that i get offended on behalf of people like yourself mm-hmm. and my teachers in, in in india when i hear people say you know oh yoga has nothing to do with the with its roots in india it's just stretching and yeah, i feel yeah. like this is as you mentioned not only a um kind of marketing ploy 
but we start to tap into this intersection of Hindu phobia uh, perpetuated by, you know, the, a dominant culture and then this aspect of appropriating that culture because right. it's the idea of profiting off of this sacred knowledge by delinking it from those things which may make it less profitable and more palatable to the sort of mainstream audience. So I, I on I, the same uh, topic, uh, you must have heard about the ban on yoga in public schools in Alabama. Yes, and, there's so much there, huh? Right. Uh, but it, it is like so confusing for us when we see uh, so it, it was almost three day, decades ago when they put up the ban mm -hmm. and uh, just like very recently they lifted a ban, lifted the ban. But if you read through all those clauses, they still, uh, so, so the, the reason they actually put the ban was saying that Hinduism and yoga cannot be delinked, which which is kind of true. So it's actually people who want, want to ban yoga are, seem like they are speaking our language, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and people who are actually trying to get yoga back, uh, it, it looks like, uh, like at least in Alabama, they had to write clauses in which you're not supposed to say namaste, you're not supposed to chant om, you're not supposed to do all this. Only then you can get yoga back and then you need a parental permission in order to uh, attend a yoga class. So it, like it is very confusing for us to see like, are we, are the people who are trying to ban yoga, right? Are the people who are trying to get yoga back, right? Uh, like, uh, they've almost secu secularized it beyond uh, calling it yoga. Uh, mm -hmm. So, like, uh, uh, I, I've actually referenced an article uh, which uh, Sneha Rao, she, she, she wrote in uh, Yoga in Amer America. Uh, so, in that, she mentions about this. Uh, this strange attempt to secularize yoga is just coloniality. Schools in the Euro U.S. already teach only a colonized Hindu-phobic interpretation of Hinduism, yet want to use Hindu practices to gain mental and physical health benefit benefits. This is epistemic violence against Hindus. So this is the situation right now we are in, and it's just a lot of for us to process <laughs> Yeah, I want to I want to unpack some of that. So so first of all, I I really thank you for reading that 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 uh, that 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 quote because it really it really hits the nail right on the head in terms of the harm that's being done when we delink the sacred practices of yoga from their Hindu roots. And the idea that the idea that that the people who want to benefit somehow from this practice without recognizing where it comes from uh, is a is a very is a very as you said confusing paradox to sit in sometimes i think that the notion in the united states of separation of church and state if we were to really carry that through then i could make it could make sense if yoga wasn't in school but then we should also not mention the word god we shouldn't say the pledge of allegiance we, you know, we should, we should, if we're really going to make this separation of church and state, then let's see it all the way through. So the, the, so in, in that sense, I feel you are right about this notion of Hindu phobia. I would like to unpack also Hindu phobia a little bit, just to be clear, 
when people hear that term, um, there, there, there are many different levels that some that we that this could be expressed on the personal level as overt racism or harm that could be done to an individual, and then there's the broader cultural sort of manifestations, uh, sort of when when a culture operates from the colonial mindset. So this this sort of fear of foreignness, this fear of otherness. How have you experienced Hindu phobia um, yourself, and how do you how do you see it uh, play out in the the broader culture of, of the yoga world? Right. Uh, so for me, this uh, delinking of yoga definitely is Hindu phobia, which I have experienced for sure. Um, also, like um, just whenever I I do talk about. Um, uh like if i am trying to defend hinduism if i'm tra- talking about hinduism if i am expressing my hinduness like just by wearing a bindi or whatever like if i'm expressing my culture uh if i am speaking for my culture there is almost always a call and it is not just me but it is uh for any any hindu that organizes it is there is always this uh uh they tell us that we are agents of uh, a political party although we have no association with any political party or what what's whatsoever it it's like every hindu is being associated with a political party just because we are being uh, hindu so this this association is still like it it is still hindu phobia for us it it's it's like we are we are we have very personal practices in our day to day lives uh, but when we see someone like talking against uh, uh, our cultural practices uh, that are in no way causing harm to anybody and we defend those like uh, how people are co- like people just call various things to hindus like they have a lot of uh, uh, words to call hindus right so this is something uh, i i do ex- uh, experience casually a lot mm-hmm. uh, so uh, so actually um, there is this uh, hindu student council uh, see uh, 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 the problem with hindu phobia has like it's very recently been defined formally until now even those who are experiencing hindu phobia it has been normalized so much that you don't even realize that you are you are experiencing hindu phobia so the form like in in academicia it's had, it has been now defined formally so this is helping us to understand that like when we come from a very uh, colonized uh, mindset it is so hard to see that we have been colonized right so it, it, it is only now that words are forming to 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 show that no this this is not right this is not okay so uh, if you want to uh, uh, know more about the formal definition i i can dive in a bit sure yes that'd be great yeah so uh, so basically hindu student council of america they have held a conference recently and they've invited several members from academicias and they have uh, so th- there's this website called understandinghinduphobia.org working definition uh, so let me quickly read out what they say uh, so hinduphobia is a set of antagonistic destructive and derogatory attitudes and behaviors towards sanatana dharma and hindus that may manifest as prejudice fear or hatred Hindu phobic rhetorics reduce the entirety of Sanatana Dharma to a rigid, oppressive, and regressive tradition. 
Pro-social and reflexive aspects of Hindu traditions are ignored or attributed to outside non-Hindu influences. This discourse actively erases and denies the persecution of Hindus while disproportionately painting Hindus as violent. These stereotypes are used to justify the disillusion, external reformation, and demonization of the range of indigenous Indic knowledge traditions known as Sanatana Dharma. The complete range of Hindu-phobic acts extend from microaggressions to genocide. Hindu-phobic projects include the destruction and desecration of Hindu sacred spaces, aggressive and forced proselytization of Hindu populations, targeted violence towards Hindu people, community institutions and organizations, and ethnic cleansing and genocide. So this is the definition of uh, Hindu-phobia. And they do claim a lot of examples, but I can just touch up on a few examples just to show. Uh, So kidnapping of Hindu women and children in acts of forcible marriage and religious conversions. You would think this is uh, more common in just Pakistan and Bangladesh, but it also happens in in several states in India where Hindus are minority. It it is very actively going on. This Mm -hmm. is like, you, you cannot really... Like when you when you uh, ask for it or when you call out on this aspect, again we are called like you know um, the terms. So mm-hmm. and there's another- so much. I mean, there's so much there. So I feel like for everyone listening, that it's important to see that when this term Hindu phobia is presented, it's a global phenomenon and it's a mindset that has empowered, uh, you know, dominant groups to take, to, to, to really commit grievous acts of harm on a broad level and on an, on an interpersonal level. And this is something that every yoga practitioner really needs to pause and reflect on how those unconscious biases might be operating within their own mind, you know? Right, right. Like, uh, in yoga circle, I've seen, um, people, uh, trying to speak up on, uh, various social justices uh, regarding India and Hindus, mm-hmm. which is okay. But the thing is when uh, a lot of indigenous people, they do call out saying, no, what you're getting is not right. Instead of listening to the indigenous folks, they try to listen to probably other brown people who also speak in your language, who also have a Western world mm-hmm. uh, worldview, who have a particular gaze. In- mm-hmm. Instead, like when 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 there are people who are saying no, this is this is not how it is. Please listen to us because if if you're if you're just going to repeat another brown person's uh, words that are in sync with your worldview, you are actively advancing colonization. Like tr- like uh, all although uh, the vocabulary of the indigenous people might be different, the uh, all of this might be different. So trying to listen to their voices is very important in order to not advance colonization. Absolutely. And I really, I I, want to bring that point up and I'm so glad you said that there's been something that has been that, that same thought has been sitting with me for a long time, actually, uh, when uh, sort of higher level Western academic thought, Mm -hmm. critical thought, which is wonderful and valid within its own, you know, ecosystem and, 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 and has added great contributions and in its own right. So it's not that that's wrong, but I've seen that particular type of thinking been applied as a critique to, um, teachers or systems within India that are lineage based and tradition based. And it felt like for me, it felt like a new form of colonialism. It's felt like 
we took this kind of dominant social view and and created this kind of moral litmus test and then all of the not all but but most of the the traditional lineage based practices that were upheld to this standard that originated in you know western universities well of course they failed it it wasn't the right language it was it was this the, this language that worked within this this culture from one side of the world and when that was applied over as the right way as the way to evaluate as the litmus test of if the lineage if the if the lineage did this then it would be good again if the lineage did this it would be good again if, they, if these yoga teachers did if they said these words then it would be good again but for me i felt like but you're not listening this is not their culture why don't you try to respect their culture and figure out how to work within a cultural framework and empower the voices within in that culture and understand that the result might not fit the Western methodology. And that has to be okay too. If we're going to be paired as equals, if we're going to benefit in that way, we can't just come in with a sort of academic colonialism and say, okay, all of India doesn't know the, how to, how to, how to, how to evolve. You know, all of India doesn't know, you know, what the right answer is because they're, you know, they're, they, they just, they've got it wrong and we know. And so therefore, again, we have this, you know, uh, I, 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 this colonial mindset that's been sort of reborn as, uh, as, you know, holding the mantle of morality and justice, which is, is, is mind boggling. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Right, right. And I'm so glad that you're pondering over that thought because, there is active erasure in academia and a lot of uh, uh, South Asian studies in specific, they hold a lot of biases about like they, they, they take a course about Hinduism and they have such false narratives about Hinduism that they're being spread. And anyone who takes those classes, they're going to come and tell us that this is what Hinduism is all about. You guys are like uh, doing this, 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 but like, they they, sp- sp- they spread such false false narratives that are being affected uh, for us even to this day. And anyone like even within ac- academia, if they are trying to uh, again, if they are trying to tell them this is not how it is, and even if they're going academically, they are their voices are being shut down. Like uh, even like regular Hindu students uh, across uh, universities in uh, US, they are facing this issue from like uh, like the professors are bullying students if if they are if they are uh, speaking about speaking out uh, against their biases so there is a lot that we are trying to uh, defend ourselves again <laughs> like it, it yeah uh, for example i don't know if you've heard of uh, uh, aryan invasion theory so this aryan invasion theory it 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 kind of states that uh, uh, people like Hindus do not belong to India, that we've moved somewhere from Europe and uh, Vedas and Upanishads and Sanskrit, all of these, they do not belong to India. Uh, they are they have all been carried over and that Hindus came and uh, uh, like attacked people in <laughs> like native people in India. So this is what Aryan invasion theory, which gained prominence in 18th century states. With the advancement in science, uh, genetic science and archaeology, this has been disproved beyond question. Like this has been disproved. Mm -hmm. But the same theory is being used, like it's still being taught in South Asian uh, studies in US. This theory was taught to me in school in India. It was taught to my mom. uh, And so there like things that have been disproved 
they are using this theory to show that uh, to to paint hindus as a very radical people they are trying to uh, attach like supremacist behavior to us using this theory like 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 this is this uh, uh, i uh, so dr wish uh, wishwa uh, adaluri and dr joydeep bakshi they wrote a book uh, nay science and this is based on indology so they they've mentioned in their book how this is the single most important theory that is being used to radicalize uh, paint hindus as radicals so unfortunately like i've even heard about uh, i've even heard from uh, fellow ashtangis who were talking about this theory uh, trying to tell that no hindus are some sort of supremacist and that uh, ramayana is apparently a fight between aryan drama and dravidian ravana which is absolutely like i mean they're, like they're just trying to put these false false equivalence false equivalence of supremacy on us so all this is coming from academia and in spite of it being disproved it's just like that's what we've been told over and over again so it's just a lot it's 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 a lot uh it's a very steep battle for us to unravel all the layers it's a big it's a big unlearning i'd like to actually go and 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 reference the date you said that this theory was uh perpetuated and promulgated in the did you say the 18th century yes it was the 18th century where right. it started this, getting uh, prominence right and so this is coinciding of course with british colonial rule Yes, right. yes. So we have to call that out and we have to name that there was someone who was benefiting at that mm-hmm. time namely the colonial power from mm-hmm. portraying the Hindu uh, faith as one that was violent that was that the people were violent and so this was allowing the colonial power to sort of say no these people must be subdued no these people must be kept down there was a, a definitive narrative around mm-hmm. that time and I think that perhaps it's it's a big unlearning that has to happen uh within unpacking any and and then deconstructing any of the critical theories that were perpetuated and 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 gained prominence around the time during during that colonial powers rule so it doesn't surprise me that this was weaponized to keep the hindu people down by the colonial power you know again nothing against england today it's a different place you know we all love the queen of today and she's really nice you know and so we think um you know it's just it's 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 also this difficult thing to straddle with these systems that were set up in the past and then it's ricocheted down and it's negatively impacting an individual like yourself and again it's not to say that you know everyone in england is now responsible for that but it's but it's this idea of how can we as human beings be more astute and more learned about the origin of things where things come from and so that we can take a moment and pause the idea that there's a fellow ashtanga yoga practitioner who sort of parroted that theory back to you and like it is baffling to me you know in what context did they say that to you and did they did they do that to um you know uh discredit an argument that you had brought up or in what context did that individual bring this this uh this you know uh old theory about the the you know the hindu culture up? it was uh, in my dms and it was while i was defending hinduism it's as simple as that like it's just to invalidate any argument that i have yeah 
I'm so sorry about that. I I just feel this. Uh, I, I I I kind of feel like I this is where the idea of cultural immersion begins to be so important for yoga practitioners because I feel like you know you practice yoga and not everybody in the Western world can take six months or a year and go live in India. Yes. And at the same time, if you're teaching yoga and that's your livelihood and your profession, I kind of feel like you should. You know, we take years off to go to university and get a master's degree. You move to the United States to get a master's degree. If your profession is going to be yoga, I feel that we we owe it to uh, to, to the lineage to take time off and, and experience cultural immersion. So go live in India for a year, you know, when the time permits and, and, and work with the lineage-based practice within India. I think that's maybe a good start because I feel like there are some of these there's some of these questions that come up and some of this, this ignorance that comes up, it could be solved from an actual real cultural immersion of just, you know, wake up every day and go to the temple and experience what actually goes on and live in the city and, you know, immerse yourself in the culture. Speaking of the culture, I I want, um, I want people who are listening to have a chance to understand a a, a, a phrase that you brought up, uh, which is the Sanatana Dharma. Mm -hmm. Um, For people who are unfamiliar with that phrase and how that relates to Hinduism, would you be able to just elaborate on that a little bit? And I know you could elaborate elaborate on that for the rest of your life, but... (laughs) No, like uh, literally Sanatana Dharma and Hinduism are one and the same. This is a term that we use for ourselves. And... uh, like just uh, if you want to know Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma, uh, you know that again, it cannot be as easily defined as other religions who have like a very strict uh, set of what a religion should be. So again, like when uh, when a Westerner tries to understand Hinduism from uh, where they come from, they kind of uh, have the false equivalences, right? So it, it is it is not very easy to define, but just uh, let me uh, say, so in Sanatana Dharma, you can worship one God, you can worship multiple gods, uh, you can worship a male God, you can worship a female God, like the Tantra tradition, you can like reject all life and rub ash and uh, live a rajasic uh, life like a aghora you can reject life and live uh, a sattvic life like a sannyasi uh, you can accept the world and live you can accept a god without any figure and call it brahman so basically there's inclusion of everything when it comes to sanatana dharma like uh, we worship every creature on the planet uh, if you take climate change it is inherently a part of sanatana dharma if you take like any non-human like figure like the dashavatara all of them are like inherently part of uh, sanatana dharma where we see divinity in every being so uh, that is uh, probably a definition for sanatana dharma for I, I know this confuses a lot because we don't have like one single pointed definition but yeah that is sanatana dharma I thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I, I, I think this is also a good contrast because it's true. The, the, the Western mind being particularly raised in a Judeo-Christian framework and heavily influenced by the singularity presented by, you know, the Judeo-Christian framework, 
is often holding that same standard up and looking for that same kind of standard. Okay, well, you know, we look in the Judeo-Christian in the the framework and it says that that there's one way and there's one truth. And one of the hardest things for a mind that's raised within that methodology to accept is there are many truths. And it's just difficult. It's just it's just this this mind-boggling sort of, well, wait, what do you mean? No, there's one way. No, there's, but they're all true and they're all valid and there's multiple ways. So instead of yes. instead of this, there's this multiplicity of of, of potentials which are non-hierarchical, you know, and this right. is difficult for again the 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 paradigm that someone raised under the judeo-christian paradigm to to really conceptualize and for all for all of the you know western western countries strong emphasis on separation of church and state you know the judeo-christian influence is probably one of the strongest influence if not the strongest influence in you know the political social cultural atmosphere of western of the western world that's true so sometimes uh, there's a phrase that you've you've uh, had said to you, and there's a phrase that I've seen where uh, someone who is of the Hindu faith will say, "No, wait a minute, uh, this isn't this isn't correct." And as you said, they'll try to defend Hinduism, and they've sort of thrown this phrase Hindutva. Mm-hmm. And like, is what what is that? And and who? Where does that come from? And how is that suddenly used on social media to just say, "Oh well, you're written off now"? Does it mean? Does it like what? What does it mean? And 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 how is that? How is that weaponized? Uh, so if you you uh, if you add the suffix "tva" in Sanskrit, it means ness. So when you just say Hindu tva, it means Hindu Hindu ness. Uh, so Hinduism, it existed for 5,000 years, but the word Hindutva, it's almost like about 50 years now. And we've been hearing it more prominently for the past 10 years, right? So uh, a lot of people, like like I was mentioning, whenever, uh, like there, we've been through a lot of colonialism and we continue to be so. So whenever we defend ourselves, we are being branded as Hindutva. So that is where it is coming from. This does not mean that there are no extreme elements. In, in uh, There are extreme elements, which uh, uh, there are extreme elements and uh, it almost feels like there, there are very marginal, but every single time there has been an extreme element like killing or lynching or stuff like that associated with Hinduism, you would see every Hindu and have every Hindu steward or every uh, uh, one who uh, practices Hindu always almost condemns it. So when we are uh, using, like when we are listening to the word Hindutva over and over and over again, and we are associating it with these extreme elements, uh, it 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 almost feels like the mar- like like the very marginal. Uh, uh, actions of uh, of this religion are being compared with uh, the mainstream elements of a- another religion. Uh, that's what it feels like to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah, like uh, the thing is um, with uh, Hinduism, like we the fact that we've existed for five thousand years doesn't mean we don't have any faults. We do have faults in in that we have self-corrected over and over. Like we haven't held a trishul at our gate and say, no, we are not going to change the comma. No, we are going to be super rigid about it. That's not it. We are, uh, 
capable of like any uh, fault lines that we have we are capable of self correcting and we will continue to self correct but we are very weary when there is an outside influence forcing us to correct when they are looking through a different lens so that uh, that, that that is why the defense mechanism comes like that is why we are like please hold off mm-hmm. like let let us let us correct we are capable of correction so uh yeah that's where we are coming from i think that's fair enough you know this is every human being is capable of of self correction and every cultural is as well you know and i i think human beings in general the more you push on them to say you have to do this you have to do this you have to do this you have to do it's almost like it's a natural reaction to say leave me alone you know and you may do that in your own time and in your own way but right. in a, in a broad cultural perspective i, I think when dominant cultures take that position of telling non-dominant cultures what to do it just you know perpetuates the cycle of you know colonization all over again and then here we are going through another loop how does this express itself in the yoga world today you know do you go take classes in local studios in the US and do you experience some of these sorts of um you know trends or experiences in class or in the yoga community or do you just not even you're you're like I don't really like the yoga studios in the US so I just practice at home no uh, so i i've been practicing hatha yoga since i was in school uh, like when i was very young because most schools in india do teach hatha yoga in the us uh, I, i did go to few yoga studios but uh, one place that i go to uh, is is a ashtanga yoga shala which i have uh, a lot of respect for they they uh also do like vedic chanting and uh, they, they teach it in a very uh, they revere it and teach it so i have a lot of uh, uh basically pranams to my gurus so i am very happy with that but uh, i i did experience other yoga studios where they just bring in a lot of mismatch like mix and match and all, all that stuff uh, it it almost doesn't look like yoga anymore to me so uh that is uh, something uh, i've experienced also like um i know it is really hard uh to pronounce sanskrit words but a lot of people not even putting any effort in uh, trying to learn learn sanskrit because sanskrit words are a mantra in itself they hold some power they hold some significance but in yoga like um, like although you're a student uh, like you have been exposed to sanskrit a lot more probably than a, a 200 year 200 hour yoga teacher right so uh, it is something uh, like when we see the pronunciations not being right and not being open to learning it uh, and also like uh, hinduism it prescribes years and years of sadhana it's very hard for us to accept someone who just does a 200 year uh, 200 hour yoga teacher training okay. as someone who is a yoga guru like uh, especially since you are in, uh, in ashtanga lineage you know that years and years of sadhana is when you are uh, actually allowed to further uh, continue and teach the practice right mm-hmm. so uh this is also a form of uh like i, I mean the way it is just uh, spreading it 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 does feel like a form of hindu phobia where you don't want to learn sanskrit you don't want to like you just want to take just the asana aspect and uh 
i know i know asana is like because we like when we do asanas we look like superhumans and it it looks amazing and all so we do want to do that but uh, not at the cost of ridic- ridiculing where it is coming from so yeah uh, this is uh, what i see uh, quite a bit absolutely i think you there there's so much there that I think is very relevant to, you know, yoga students. And, we're not, and you know, you're not saying don't do the 200 hour course, mm-hmm. just don't come out of the 200 hour course and think now I'm a fully trained, astute yoga teacher. You know, we, we run a 200 hour course at our, at our, at our mm-hmm. yoga space in, in Miami. And, and the whole course is designed to teach people that they're just at the beginning of the path. Right. You know, I think that so, is very important uh, yeah. distinction that they should know that they're not yoga masters. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah. Who is a yoga master? You know, mm-hmm. maybe a lifetime of practice. Maybe you only know at the end of your life, if you really mastered the practice or not. Uh, but the, 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 the interesting kind of divorcing of the Sanskrit terms for the asanas and the Sanskrit terms for the yoga philosophy is something that I definitely see in a lot of uh, contemporary yoga circles. There are people that exclusively refer to the asanas in their English names. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was almost something bizarre because I learned them as the Sanskrit words. I didn't even know that they had a translation in English for Mm -hmm. a few years that I've been practicing. And and, um, you know, I remember uh, my teacher Sharaji was teaching a friend of mine, Navasana, and uh, he smiled at her and said, boat. And <laughs> she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Why are we talking about boats? And he was like, had this big grin on his face. Like, I'm teaching you the English word. And, the, and then he said, Navasana. And then she's like, oh, okay, Navasana. And it was just funny because in in our ashtanga tradition we rarely use the english words uh, for the asanas and then ooh, ooh, to such a degree so that some of the you know some of the english words for the asanas have nothing to do with their sanskrit roots so like badakonasana people refer to in such all these weird you know interesting sort of like words to describe this pose, everything from cobbler's pose to butterfly and right, you know, it's right. just uh, totally different, you know, words. And uh, I, I, I really encourage everyone to really put the effort in, you know, uh, like learning some of the, some of the basics of Sanskrit pronunciation, the, the asana names. What is one perhaps kind of really crazy mispronunciation that you could think of that you've heard in the yoga world? Is there one that you could think of that you're like, oh, this one, people really just don't, just, they don't know how to say. Uh, It's hard for me to pinpoint one word. Uh, Like there, I mean, there are a lot of sounds that uh, uh, like the, for example, they're not able to pronounce the, or like there's a lot of ah, going on so trying to soften it to <laughs> you know like instead of just pulling it wherever you want that happens quite a bit mm-hmm. not a single single point out one word <laughs> yeah well what the i've uh there the first time that i heard someone say patanjali they mm-hmm. said patanjali 
Oh my god! And, okay, and it was like <laughs> you know what I mean. And then you know it's okay. So okay, you mispronounce something, right. just learn the right way. We can't get it right. Like I have a, I also I have a name that people don't always say right the first, you know couple of times and you know okay. that's okay uh, and, and not just that like a lot of uh, words or our names uh, like uh, they have a lot of uh, sanskrit influence on how we are named a lot mm-hmm. of people like when i say sushma uh, thankfully you you wanted to get it right but a lot of people like can i call you sue can i call you this like no no just try to pronounce my name uh, like they have a meaning to to it mm-hmm. our parents named us because it has some meaning it has some significance so <laughs> it 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 even boils down to just uh, a lot of indigenous names that people don't try to pronounce right at all to make the effort is a sign of respect yes yes definitely <laughs> yeah i i i really i really get that and i uh, there's one word that has kind of come up that is used a lot that you've probably heard mispronounced which is namaste so you have you know people say nam like uh, namaste And, right. then they really, and then they make the jokes on the word, you know, like namaste or, you know, all of these other kind of puns or, you know, namaste in bed. You'll see this and, 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 you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's just very disrespectful, especially like when you know that it is about seeing the divine within the other person. So mm-hmm. like you just can't uh, call out the names, right? That That's what namaste means, right? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and, and. In terms of pronunciation, you know, definitely pronunciation meaning. So to be able to use a phrase that's not of your language to take the time to learn where it comes from and what it means. I, I also sometimes think that uh, the erasure of Sanskrit from yoga is also, as you mentioned, this this form of of Hindu phobia to to sort of just whitewash. all of yoga into something that's more palatable to you know the western society and and i i i'm not for that you know i feel i feel we should really try to stay true as much as possible to you know the origins of our lineage and our tradition and 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 you know maybe one of the issues with contemporary yoga is that so many people don't have a lineage and tradition you know mm-hmm. they just have a 200 hour training so What advice do you have to the contemporary yoga practitioners who are listening who might say gosh I want to do the right thing you know how how can I you know erase and and work with my own bias how do I get like how do I recognize my own hindu phobia how have I been programmed by the dominant culture and how can I learn to respect uh you know yoga and the hindu culture and how can i honor that in my life and in my practice what what advice would you have uh, so, so like like you were mentioning the dominant culture does drive the narrative unfortunately when uh, it it kind of goes back to india again like even uh, the dominant culture although although we are learning yoga from india coming back and teaching in west and somehow a lot of studios that come back again in india they do what the west does it i think it happens across the world you see a, a lot of uh, uh, the other cultures they are driven by what is happening in western culture so if you are like uh, unfortunately you do have the power to drive the narrative and if you are erasing sanskrit it's somehow 
does it, it it is being percolated down back to india again so please don't do that for us please try to <laughs> please try to take some effort uh, like uh, sharad ji always uh, suggests to go and learn sanskrit right he uh, like uh, there's another teacher who offers uh, sanskrit class like if if you have uh, that option please do go and learn uh, at least like minimum pronunciation uh, and do respect how it is don't it, it's not some like fantasy world like a lot of people fine like yoga comes from some fantasy and all that right it, it, it's not that it has it holds a lot of significance so definitely please please uh, like uh, work work on it work on your sadhana to actually find your true self in stuff just going there to just feel good about yourself <laughs> so yeah uh, i i'd say that and like when you are talking uh, just hold back a little and see how that is going to affect how that is going to genuinely affect uh, the indigenous cultures try to step back is what uh, uh i i would suggest at least with respect to uh, uh uh other like when you're driving the narrative for the indigenous cultures please try to step back yeah thank you so much for that i think this is a wonderful note to leave everyone on and i thank you so much for your time and your sharing and it's been my pleasure to have you on the show so thank you thank you so much kino Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel Omstars, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.